Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today, and I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. Hey, welcome to Gravetop Online Service. I hope that you're having a great Monday evening. I hope your week has started off great. Today we are starting our new series called The Living One, and we're going to be talking about love first today. This whole month that we're going over The Living One, what we're really talking about is Jesus, who Jesus is, and what uh, what He is really calling us to do in our lives. Jesus being the living one, what that means is we're, we're emphasizing Jesus being alive. What we really need to know as Christians is that when Jesus died on the cross, it paid for our sins only if he rose from the dead. If Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, then the payment on the cross, it would have more just been a, a nice gesture. It wouldn't have really paid for a debt. But since he did raise from the dead, he is the living one. It causes us to, to know without a doubt that our sins are paid for. If, and that's why we call ourselves Grave Top Churches, to always remind us that Jesus is alive. The other part of that is that he calls us to be alive as well. We are supposed to be, uh, we're no longer dead to our old lives, to our sin, but we are alive in Christ. And I want to share this verse with you guys. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Jesus talking, I am the living one. I died, but look. I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and the grave. It's such an important message that Jesus is emphasizing his identity being alive. He's no longer dead, but he is alive. Um, with that being said, um, today our first, uh, our first message is really looking at the first seven churches that it talks about in Revelation. Revelation is one of the most um, <laughs> avoided books of the Bible, mainly because people are afraid of Judgment Day. I, I feel like people are more so afraid because of the way our culture um, in Western America have made it like fire and brimstone. But the reality is, is that the first chapter of that book says, blessed is every person that reads this book. And as we look through this, this book and look at the, the seven churches, we're going to see how Jesus chooses to reveal himself. And we're also going to see what, what about these churches can we take away from to, for ourselves. And so starting off, um, our, uh, our first look is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says this. Now let's pause there. Just as a, as a pregame note, this today we're going to be really breaking down scripture by scripture. And so we're going to be reading and then pausing, reading and pausing. In this verse, this is Jesus talking. This is a specific way he's choosing to reveal himself to the church of Ephesus. It says that he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Now, prior to this verse, it says that the, the angels of these, uh, that the, the stars that the seven stars are actually referencing 
seven angels, and that the seven gold lampstands are referencing the seven churches that he's addressing. Now, we, uh, what theologians have inferred is that these angels are symbolic of the church leaders of that time, because he's, uh, he's giving a reference to them being heavenly, that they, they, have, their, um, they have spiritual implications, but also because if they were angels, he wouldn't necessarily be giving a correction or a rebuke to them. And so that's why we can take that he's, talk, uh, that he's referring to the leadership of these seven churches. And now let's look at this idea that he, he describes himself to them as the one who holds the seven stars and the one who walks among the seven golden lights. And what we're seeing is that he's with you and he's working. The, when it says that he holds the, the seven stars in his right hand, what, it's, what he's describing is that he is the one who gives, uh, holds and gives authority of leadership and influence. That's what the star is being described as, is this idea of leadership and flu- influence. It's giving off light. It's projecting something. And uh, when it says that he's the one that gives authority in this in this leadership and influence, and it says that he walks in the, among the lampstands, what it's showing is that he walks closely in the church. That he it, this is inferring intimacy. It's inferring his presence. It's it, it's implying an examination to detail. You know, I feel like this spot right here is is so almost overly simple. Yet this is the biggest struggle that. Not not just churches, but every Christian deals with is wondering if God is with me, if He's working through me, if God is working in my life, and and this is the first way that He reveals Himself is that I I have given you power, I've given you authority, and I'm working in you, I'm with you, I'm walking with you, I'm working through you, and He chooses to consistently show Himself in this relational and involved kind of example. Even though we continuously isolate ourselves from Jesus and imagine that he's distant, that Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with us, I really believe that that whole idea is is something that we have made in our own imagination of what God's character is like. Because scripture shows us the truth of how he operates and is. And the scriptures uh, consistently show God and Jesus being truly good. He sees you and he is with you. I think a lot of uh, a lot of us can just rest in that. I think you may, there's someone here even listening and you just need to rest in that simple truth that, that Jesus is with you and he's working. Jesus is with you and he's working. Let's go on into the next verses. It says uh, right after verse 1 verse 2 through 3, he says, "I know your deeds and your labor and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. And you have put those who call themselves apostles to the test, and they are not. You have found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured on my on account of my name, and have not become weary. We're just seeing Jesus affirming this church. He's saying all the good things that they've been doing. And truly, this church of Ephesus um, is equivalent to like a mega church in San Antonio. They they were uh, they they were truly growing. It was one of the first churches that Paul planted, 
and it was in the midst of a, one of the biggest pagan worshiping cities in the land of that time. Not saying that San Antonio is the biggest pagan worshiping city of our time. Um, but what I'm implying is that it's a big city. And in this area, um, it had such high levels of pagan worship. I mean, just in, and when we read through the book of Acts, we see that Paul was attacked viciously um, and as the, the crowds uh, gathered around and chanted, uh, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they just were chanting the, this praise to their God while they were just upset that Paul had converted anybody away from the worship of their God. Um, and so this is huge pagan worship. And not only is it just like this idea of worshiping, you know, this simple idea of worshiping something other than God, uh, uh, other than our God, but their their practice of worship of this specific goddess involved like crazy sexual orgies, uh, just sexual worship. It's just all about sex and and that kind of idolatry. And so, uh, for this church to be planted and grow as strong as it was, and one of the one of the biggest morals of Christianity is sexual purity. It's completely counterintuitive to the city and what everybody else thinks. So the fact that they grew in the midst of so much opposition is, is, is amazing. And what I want us to do is look at this affirmation and pull, uh, really unpack what Jesus has said to them and look how it really applies to our lives and our church. First, um, all of these things that the church reflects is an affirmation of what we want to reflect. It shows that they're hard workers in the community and church. It, it shows that they were not only working in their community outside of the church, but they were truly growing within their church. They were very close-knit together, and they were growing and helping each other, not just reaching out, but reaching within. And that's something that we should strive in doing when it comes to making a difference, reaching out and also reaching in the church. They revered holiness and resisted sinfulness. You know, at first glance, I feel like our Western culture uh, thinks that that's just calling out sin and being really mean. <laughs> that That's not what the way that we see sin necessarily being called out in Scripture. Jesus was actually the most gentle to those who were struggling with sin. And what it shows us is that we should pursue spiritual growth and celebrate our victories over sin. And that happens with a transparency, with a transparent uh, communication with the, each other as we do our best and forget the rest. I mean, imagine you actually really being transparent about your struggles with sin and your pathway of like trying to walk in victory. Because the truth is a, a vast majority of us want to pursue holiness, but we slip up and we struggle. But the problem is, is we're so afraid of judgment and condemnation that we hide sin that we go through that we're struggling with because we're afraid of what others will think. But imagine if we were able to be transparent with each other without the fear of judgment or condemnation from our fellow church people, but that they would actually help strengthen those areas that we are weak and help help us to band together and and lean on as we walk towards victory. I mean, that's truly a way to pursue holiness is with each other as a community. And it takes transparency. The, the other things about them is that they seek truth 
and they supported only truth. We should hold the truth of Scripture dear to our hearts and resist any tickle of the ear that would tempt us to alter even the simplest truth, even if it's uncomfortable. I believe that the only way that we could understand the idea of being truth seekers, the only way that we could really fulfill that is if we examine scripture ourselves. I've said it before and I'll say it a thousand more times. Right now, the, the average statistic for Christians in the U.S. that read the Bible is 9%. That's incredibly low. And that means that there's there's millions of people that the only the only concept of truth is what they're told by somebody else. Even as I'm sharing this message to you today, it's through the filter of my eyes, my perspective. And, and you, you limit yourself in understanding the full grasp of truth when, when you're drinking through the filter of somebody else's mouth. You truly have to seek truth yourself, and that's by reading the scriptures. You know, we just started our one-year reading plan. We even started a New Testament challenge to read through the New Testament this 30 days, and it's been great. It, did you know that just to read through the Bible in one year, it takes reading less than 10 minutes a day? I mean, you could, you could even if you were just listening to it twice the speed, it would take you probably three minutes. I mean, it is so... Uh, it is actually so accessible and so easy to go through scripture, but people find so many reasons why they can't do it. Think of how often um, we mindlessly scroll on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook, on, on Twitter, whatever you're using. How, t- think about how long it takes just for you to find your net- Netflix show. Just the time that you're looking for your Netflix show, because you've already watched that, you've already watched this, you've already watched that, and you're scrolling for for how long? Do you think that you would have been able to fit 10 minutes of reading the Bible? Just honestly, it's, it's that simple, but we make it so much bigger of a deal than it is. I'm telling you, if truly, if you just even this whole year, just listen to the daily readings, it, it, even if you're able to blast through it in three minutes and you're just listening to it, even if you're distracted, you will grow so much more than if you didn't. It's better to at least get the outline of the tree. And so many people, so many people make a reason of, well, I don't get to really digest what I'm actually reading. I don't get to sit down and unpack each verse. Well, you're not going to be able to do that if you can't even draw the outline of the tree. If you're wanting to to draw each of the details of the leaves you still have to start with the main tree. You can't just you have to get the outline first. And you do that by even if it if that's all you can do is listening to the audio, it's better than nothing. Stop making spiritual sounding excuses of why you can't listen to or read the Bible. It's so important. That's the only way we could be truth seekers. And I'll, I'll even give an example like this. How would you know if even what I'm telling you is actually real or not? Unless you're reading the Bible yourself. If say Gravetop has been such an edifying experience for you, you've grown in your faith, but how do you even know what I'm saying is accurate? How do you even know what I'm saying about God is true? You're, you're completely trusting me instead of the scripture itself. And, and as, as flattering as that may be, I urge you to, to look at what truth is yourself. And when people are examining counterfeit, uh, when people, bankers and, and money handlers, 
are examining counterfeit bills? Did you know that they do not take time studying what a counterfeit looks like? They examine the real thing, what the true bill looks like, and that way when a counterfeit comes by, they're able to spot it right away. In the same way, why waste your time watching YouTube videos or, or seeking, uh, searching what the Illuminati is, or if you're afraid of, you might be listening to someone that's evil, why don't you just seek truth instead, instead of all this other trash? And when, if you know truth well enough, a lie won't be able to slip by you. So I, I know I harped on that a lot, but it's just so important, guys. Um, and then finally, they have endure, they showed endurance through trials and times. We, if we want to reflect this church and their endurance, we have to sink our feet deep into our faith in Jesus' resurrection. And we have to sink our feet into the idea that our lives and our, it, the way that we decided to follow Jesus, that there's no turning back. If your faith in Jesus is based off of circumstance, it, it's destined to change. If uh, I remember when I first gave my life to Christ, I would ask other people, why are you a Christian? Typically, everybody would respond saying my life was either really good or my life was really bad hardly anybody, almost nobody would tell me because they believe Jesus rose from the dead. See that simple thing right there, Jesus rising from the dead, that's a fact that won't change. You can put your feet on that foundation. But if it's God has been good to me, well, anyone that's been long alive long enough can, can tell you that life has ups and downs. And if your life has been really good, there might be some caca on the way. And if your life has been really bad, you're probably going to step into something good soon. And so you, you need to really put your faith in the foundation of Jesus's resurrection. If you're wanting to endure through trials, through, if you ever want, if you want to endure through any kind of persecution, whether now or in the future, if you want to endure through the times, I mean, times are changing and it is, it is not a popular idea to be a Christian. The, the first thought most people have towards Christians is negative. Are you really going to be able to endure through that in the future if, if your faith isn't solidly placed in the resurrection of Christ to where you put a, a label over your mind, no turning back? You know, with all these affirmations, it shows us that this church was truly amazing. I mean, Jesus is... All the things that he affirms his church on is things that any church would aspire to be. It, they just seemed like they were they were almost workaholics. Like they just could not stu stop doing the work of God. And it seemed like they were really effective. Jesus is saying, you revered holiness. He, he was telling them that you've resisted evil. I mean, that is like a, a really heavy proclamation for Jesus to make about a church. But... Let's continue reading of what his correction is. It says in Revelation 2, chapter, four, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 through 5, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is, says to the churches. By the way, the Nicolaitans 
were simply believers in that, er in that time that compromised their faith by involving themselves with the sexual practices of the Ephesian society. People that say, yeah, we can do Jesus, but you don't have to make such a big deal about it. We can do whatever we want. That's what the blood is for. Just go crazy. That's why he's saying, you, you resisted them, I resist them too. And so going on, it says, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is the in the paradise of God. So this big correction to the church is that they lost their first love. You know, when you think about that, I feel like most of us imagine love to be something easy. Like anytime that you've heard of, uh, we have to love our neighbor, we th usually think, yeah, I got that down, what's next? <laughs> we, we wanna go to further and deeper teachings. Yeah, love your neighbor, I get it, whatever. What's next? And for Jesus to emphasize that this church is doing great, almost literally everywhere else, to the point where even after this, he, he affirms them again, saying that you resisted believers who even compromised their own uh, faith with sinfulness. You know, they had such high standards, and he's saying, but you, you lost your first love. Go back to the things that you did at first. They're doing so many great things. What how, What could they not be doing now that they used to do? And what I believe is that what happens is that pain in life often steals our innocent passions and make us forget why we started. Let me say that again. Pain in life often steals our innocent passions and makes us forget why we started. See, this church, when it says that Go back to the things you did at the beginning. What is it like to be a beginner? It's, it's like being innocent. <laughs> you, you don't know what you don't know. And most of the things that we learn to know are painful things. And so many times we do the right thing and even persevere through those pains, through those trials, through opposition. But even when we make it to the other side, we're left jaded as we continue going, but we lose our love and our why. You know, it makes me think about so many marriages that, that just simply lose that passion that they had at the beginning. And I, I believe it's an appropriate comparison because Jesus relates his relationship to the church as a marriage. And most marriages, when they get married, it's almost like this innocent puppy dog love. You know, if you've ever heard the honeymoon phase, it's where you're just so into your spouse, it seems like nothing else matters. You're dating just because of the fun of it, that you, you want to, you enjoy it. But then once you get married, you start going through bills. <laughs> you start going through, uh, through shortcomings. You start going through uh, each other's faults. And you start digging so much deeper into life. And all of a sudden, the person that you love says a comment. And so you say a comment back. And all of a sudden, this, this passion that was there is no longer innocent because something happened or someone did something or said something. 
and the innocence just doesn't seem like it was there like it was when y'all were dating. When y'all were just at the courthouse smiling, uh, not caring that any, that it's just you and the spouse getting married at the courthouse because you're just so happy to be together. See, so many marriages that even start like that, or whether it's a full-blown ceremony in marriage and you're just so excited that everything was working out. It's like your fairy tale wedding. What happens is pain in life is experienced. And it becomes so hard to where you make it through, but you start doubting even the beginnings. To where you don't even trust the person you used to be. And you start thinking, well, I was just foolish then. I was just gullible. That's why. Uh, that's why we got married like that. Well, I was just gullible. I was stupid. And you start to doubt who you used to be. But the only difference is that we've become jaded after we go through those trials. To where we go through the same motions, but it's no longer just simply fun like it used to be. And when I think about our relationship with God, so many times people... Uh, seek God, and it's like when you read Scripture for the first time, it's just amazing. It's like, oh my gosh, I didn't know that was there. I'm learning so much about God. But then when it goes through reading the second time, you're like, oh, this isn't, this isn't as fun. <laughs> I already read this before. And it, it becomes just different as you're seeking God continuously. And when Jesus tells them to remember where you have fallen, what he's saying is remember the beginnings you had. Don't doubt them but remember them because they were accurate and they were true. And whatever it is for you that you feel like you've lost that love, that spark, I really want to encourage you that, that what, what has changed from when you first started? Ask yourself that. What has changed from when you first started? And whether it's your work, whether it's your school, whether it's your family, your marriage, your walk with God, maybe your connection to church altogether. How many people, how many of us have been so hurt by church to where we no longer have the spark we had when we first went to church and it felt like, this is great, I feel so loved, I feel connected, I feel God when I'm here. What happened to that spark? And it's usually painful experiences. Jesus tells this church to remember what the beginning was like in order to find their spark again. And I think that we need to apply that to our lives and remember what the beginning was like so that we can find that spark again. And if it's your relationship with God, I think so many of us, it was, it was before we made a routine of prayer or before we made a routine of when we go to churches, before we made all the, the rules or the routines, but it was simply just like, this, this desire to just do what we could. And we didn't, we didn't feel so guilty when we fell short because we, weren't that, we, we knew we weren't that great to, to begin with. And I think that part of it is just taking off this idea of what we have to do and, and looking at this idea of what we get to do. I hope that this is, is urging you to find your spark again. And I, what I really hope it's beckoning in all of us is that the innocence that we had at the beginning of our walk, that we can get back to that even when we've been battered and bruised. And if this church was doing as great as it was here, imagine how much greater 
if they went, if they found this love again. See, it's not about just trying to go back to what we once had, but once we get what we once had, it, it's just exponentially greater because of what we now know. And I really believe that it involves a choice and a pursuit. And it leads us to our last point, which is everything hangs on love. Everything hangs on love. Love is more than a flutter of the heart. It's an action and a choice. Again, love is more than a flutter of the heart. It is an action and a choice. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36 through 38, Jesus, uh, this is uh, what it says, Teacher, which is the great commandment and the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. That's the first book of the New Testament. Revelation is the last book of the New Testament. So we see in both the beginning and the end that Jesus is saying love is simply the greatest. That love should be our pursuit. And that love is almost like the answer to all of our questions. What do I have to do? And he says, love God, love people. This church in Ephesus, he's saying, look, you're doing all great, but you need to love. You need to go back to love. You've forgotten about love. And it just shows that this idea about love, even though we think it to be simple, it actually has so much more to unpack that we could spend the rest of our lives trying to understand and pursue love and we would never achieve 100%. Love is truly something that is powerful and is actually something difficult. So even when we were developing our purpose at Gravetop, other pastors and churches told me that our purpose, love God, love people, was too ooey-gooey. It's too mushy. And, and I'd simply responded, I don't think you've ever loved somebody to where it hurts. <laughs> Have you ever loved somebody that hated you? It's not ooey-gooey. It's ugly. <laughs> It does not feel good. If you ever love somebody that's hard to love, it's, it's not an easy process. I mean, even loving those that you like can be difficult. Look at just almost every marriage. There's times where even just loving somebody you like is hard. Love is so much more than that. And yet, every time we think of love, it's like, yeah, check, next. Love is more than that. Look at what Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. This whole chapter, he talks about love. We're going to just poke around. If I speak with tongues of mankind and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains... But do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions to charity, and if I surrendered my body so that I may glory, but do not have love, it does me no good. This is so much greater than what we initially expect. Love is so much more powerful, so much more to pursue Yet we write it off. I want to learn about deeper truths. Let's get past this love stuff. 
Love is where we need to settle on. Love is a place where we need to grow. For this church to be doing as great as it did, and Jesus' only rebuke was, you have lost your first love, we need to focus on that. Love is... And in, in uh, later in the end of that chapter in verse 13, it says, But now faith, hope, and love remain, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest out of hope and faith. The Bible says that everything else will pass away, but, the great, but now faith, hope, and love remain, and the greatest is love. That's powerful, guys. Love is usually an afterthought rather than a forethought. We overlook this command more than any other, even though it's the focus of Jesus in the first and last book of the New Testament. Love is what binds us together. When you think about what love looks like, it often looks like diversity banding together. People from all different walks of life, people from all kinds of different backgrounds, different personalities, being able to band together, that's only possible with love. Love is what motivates us. Not only does love bind us with, with God's people and with God himself, but it motivates us. You know, for the longest time, when uh, Jesus just one day revealed to me that why should I love my neighbor? You know, what really should compel me or motivate me to love another human being, a stranger at that? And it's simply, for me, this is the way it makes sense. God loves me so much. It's such an intimate and personal relationship that was sacrificial and redemptive. And that kind of love changed my entire life to where my, my whole walk completely changed. The way I lived completely changed because of that love. I, I really revere and honor that love that God has for me. And when I understand that he has that same love for other people, how could, how could I not want to love on the people that God loves? Because I know that it's showing him love when I love other people. It's like for my wife, anyone that shows kindness to my wife, it, it, is, it makes me happy. And, and so I, I urge us to look at love being the motivator of uh, God's love motivates us to love others. And finally, love is what covers our differences. You know, there's so many different churches, so many different denominations, and so many different people, so many different personalities. And this year has been the most divisive year in our country probably since the Civil War. I mean, not, not only has political tension completely torn us apart, but to the point where Everyone airs their mind and opinion about everything on social media. You could just put, uh, it's like almost like anything that you put nowadays is a controversial issue. And people are ready to divide and attack because we see things differently. But see, with love, it actually covers those differences to where we can have different opinions, we can have different points of view, and we can still be united because of love. Love covers not only a multitude of sins, but a multitude of differences. And if we were to start this year with any kind of forethought, it should be love. If there's anything that 2020 taught us, it should have taught us that we need to start this year with the mindset of love instead.
love for our neighbor, love for God, to the point where when, no matter what happens, it's an action and a choice that I'm going to make. Love. I want us to, to, as we close, take a moment to think, what is this message speaking to you today? I want you to, to cognitively think about what is it that God is trying to speak to you? What is it that, that is just moving on your heart? Is it this idea of love? Are you thinking about people that you need to forgive? Are you thinking about people that, that, that you need to love on? Are you thinking about maybe it, this triggered you to all the pains that you experience and you're, in the, you're still thinking about how you used to be innocent, but now you've become so jaded and you're thinking, is it really possible for me to have that spark again? That sparkle in my eye of innocence. Maybe for you, uh, you're, just, you're just thinking about how this idea of, of walking with God, where it said, G, where we talked about how Jesus is with you and walking with you, you're stuck on that and you're just really thinking, is it true for me too? It's easy to think Jesus walks with other people, Jesus is with other people and helping other people, but it's so hard for me to believe it for myself. Is that something you're thinking? I want you to have a moment where you pray and just say, God, I want to see clearly in this message and what is it that you're trying to speak to me? And I urge you to have a moment of decision to where you say, God, from this moment, I want to do this. From this moment, I'm going to see it this way. From this moment, I'm going to believe this. Have a moment of decision today. And maybe for you, that moment of decision is actually choosing to walk with Jesus, to put your trust in him. The Bible says in the book of Romans that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's the son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead, that having a conversation with him like that is, is all it takes to start this journey of walking with him. If that is you today, I really want to urge you to make that prayer. You don't even need me to lead you through it. You can make that authentic prayer yourself. And I, I really just pray that you'd have a moment where uh, you can just have this authentic, genuine conversation with Jesus and say, I want to walk with you and I trust you. Be the Lord of my life and help me to walk this point forward in a different way. You know, with all that being said, um, I want to thank y'all for being a part of the Gravetop family. You know, we, we have been, we started this year to where this Sunday we started the first day of our 21-day fast. And this is day two. If you, ha if you heard about the fast, maybe this is your first time hearing about the fast, you can still be a part. All you have to do is just join. Look at our, our website, look at our, uh, our website and find the resources, 21-day fast, and you can find all the things about fasting there. But these 21 days, I want to encourage you, those of you who are fasting, to make time to press into God. Don't let it just be a diet or a hunger strike, but make it an emphasis of pursuing Jesus in your life. And we're also going through these, these reading plans. We're doing the one-year reading plan that everybody should really join. I believe that every Christian should be reading the Bible at least once a year repeatedly, not just once, one and done, but over and over. But we're also doing a New Testament challenge where we're reading through the entire New Testament 
in these 30 days of January. These readings take maybe 30 minutes and it is so worth it for you to grow your faith and understand God in your life. With all that being said, if you have it in your heart to give today, you can do that by going on to gravetop.com, click the Give tab, and you can give online. You can also give through third-party apps like Venmo or Cash App. But we wanna, I always like to let you know that when you give, we never want you to feel pressured or persuaded to give. But we want you to know that you do make a difference at Gravetop Church when you do give. It helps us, uh, it empowers us to continue to reach people like you to provide messages like this. And also it empowers us to be able to grow as a church. Um, and those of you who do give, we are so grateful for your generosity. Um, we love you guys. We're, uh, we hope you all have a great rest of your week. And just FYI, this week we are scheduled to have our baby, our third child, three children under three years old. And we're terrified and excited and at the same time. And so be praying for us. We're, uh, we're nervous, but we're also really, really joyful. It's going to be our baby boy and he's going to be coming to the world very soon. So we love y'all. I hope y'all have a great rest of your, your evening. And remember that uh, you being a part of Grave Top Church, we truly value uh, you. And we believe that everyone matters. So have a great rest of your week. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.